Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Welcome to another very special coronavirus episode, although not about coronavirus, of really true fiction. This is Luke Mason. And this is David Parker. David, I know you like music. It's true. I know you listen I to do. it all the time. I do. It, uh, it's good for your soul. Great for my soul. You ever listen to Mike Milligan and the Kitchen Brothers? <laughs> They're a bit of a prog rock band, uh, straight out of Kansas City. Little, definitely some punk rock, maybe a little bit of hardcore going on there. Yeah. Although they seem to have uh, some literary flair, you know. Well, I, I noticed, too, they managed to keep their sound kind of similar, even though when they lost one of their main members. I know. <laughs> I know. It was a little... That was tragic. The trick is it wasn't the lead singer. Untimely right? death, if really. You, it was. <laughs> yeah. If you lose the lead singer, it's a different feel. If you're just the Kitchen Brothers, it's not the same thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was a bass player. Those are... That's a replacement. Not even the drummer. <laughs> Yeah, so, well, I'm glad you like them. Yeah. I didn't know well, you were into prog rock. The- <laughs> Not normally, but, you know, <laughs> in times this, they are a-changing. <laughs> yeah, in this in this iteration. So that's a little joke on our uh, beginning of a two-part where we've decided, basically with every TV show, we've had to do two parts because there's just too much, which makes sense. I mean, movies are like two hours, but TV shows can be many, many many more hours than that orders of magnitude even yep and so we are doing the second season we're starting today the second season of the tv show fargo which aired in 2015 i believe and stars patrick wilson and kirsten dunst jesse plemons uh, ted danson uh nick offerman is in there a little bit too gene smart and a few other faces you'd recognize. I think actually, I don't know this for sure, but I think Rory Culkin plays Rye. So Macaulay Culkin's brother, I think. Yep. But yep. I could have double-checked that, but again, not exactly my MO. Not, not, <laughs> not what we do on here. <laughs> yeah. And actually, so for those of you who don't know, just quick background, there was a 1996 film called Fargo, written and directed by the Coen brothers. It's a great film. Unbelievable. If you haven't seen it, don't listen to this. Stop right now. Go watch that film and then go watch season one of Fargo and then go watch season two and then you'll be ready to listen to this episode. No, so you... really, we don't want anyone listening to <laughs> yeah, this episode. If you're listening, just, just stop. Uh, this is just our niche, <laughs> us having fun. <laughs> because there is a kind of universe, I guess, created in that film of super duper violent characters with these super cheesy, hilarious Minnesotan accents, you know? And so the juxtaposition between the violence and the and the kind of seemingly innocence of the characters is what's so funny. So anyway, what happened was the Coen brothers wrote and directed this movie in 96. It came out. And then this guy named Noah Hawley, 
um, I guess, got permission from them to write a TV show script set in the same universe in the same part of the Midwest, kind of North Dakota, Minnesota area. So then the first season, which we're not doing, um, stars Billy Bob Thornton and Martin Freeman and takes place in 2006 in the universe. So 10 years after the movie was made. Although I think, if I remember correctly, the events of the Fargo film were in 1987. So it would have been like almost 20 years in the timeline after the events of the film. And then the events of season two of Fargo, the TV show, which is what we're actually doing in today's episode and the next episode, they occur in 1979. Because there's a character, one of the main characters' father in season one of Fargo is the main character of season two of Fargo. And Fargo, the TV show, especially this season, I remember the first time I watched it through when it came out in 2015, thinking, this is amazing. Like, this show is so good. So it was actually one of the kind of germane stories I kind of wanted to do in general about really true fiction. And finally, we've just had enough time to get around to it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think... For cinema lovers and for people who appreciate, I guess, the golden age of television that we've been in, that we've talked about before, I think this is kind of one of the high points. Uh, you see on on Rotten Tomatoes that it's at 100%. All of the uh, reviews are essentially like, this is what TV should be. I think you said to me uh, off podcast at one point that this, why can't all television be this good? This mm-hmm. is like, this is what anthologies should be. This, mm-hmm. this is the kind of the peak and pinnacle of what's possible in the art form of the TV series. Yeah. 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 It's, it's the perfect example of the golden age of television. I think maybe more than any other show I can think of. Yeah. And it's pretty crazy that we get to live in (laughs) the gold. Well, maybe we're at the tail end of it now, but we certainly got to spend our twenties in the golden age of television. Well, I'm still hopeful. <laughs> yeah. Better Call Saul is still on TV and that I just finished watching the fifth uh the end of season 5 of Better Call Saul and it was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. I'm pretty stoked. So, but I mean, again, that's still playing on the lore of Breaking Bad, so we'll, we'll see. Yeah, yeah, maybe we we need another iconic television show <laughs> yeah. here pretty quick if we're going to stay in the golden age, right? <laughs> well, and especially because uh we're if we're not staying in the golden age, we're certainly staying in our houses. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we have the time. Yeah. And so why I thought I wanted to do, and I talked David into doing season two specifically, is like we could do season one. I mean, there's definitely enough in season one that's awesome and entertaining. But the second season just, it transcended the first season. Like there's just something about, and maybe it's also partly like the aesthetic, the 70s look of everything too, that just sold it to me. But I think that I found that there were more because you've seen both seasons now, I found that there were slightly more compelling characters in the second season than in the first one. Yeah, I, I, I haven't been able to put my finger on what is more compelling about it. Uh, I mean... Because the first season's great. Yeah, but I agree. I think they just kind of tinkered with a few things and, and mastered their universe mm-hmm. in season two in a way that they, they didn't in season one. And so, they just, like, again, season one is very good. Yeah, but there were... um. There were more like kind of massive moments, I think, in season two than in season one. You know? Like yeah. Just big, well, especially big gunfights, I yeah, guess. Yeah, there's, there's a lot more action, let's say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and so. And it feels more uh, grandiose. Mm-hmm. There's definitely a, 
an epic feel to it that you don't feel in season one. Season one feels like it's more about like a conspiracy. Yeah. And this feels, I mean, like a war. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just before I do a little plot rundown, this was not, this would not have been an easy idea to pitch of a Fargo TV show. Not because it's not a story worth telling. Obviously it is, but because the original film is so beloved and such a, I don't even want to say a cult classic because it's its like a mainstream cult classic, you know? Like it has, the fandom of it is voracious. <laughs> yeah, but, like, but, well, there's, there are people like heap praises on mm-hmm. this film. But it's also not quite niche. Like I think most people have seen Fargo, the TV, or the movie, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's not like a, yeah. whoa, wow, where'd this movie come well, from? Well, maybe most people our age. Yeah, sure. I think probably a lot well, and, of... Well, and because it's the Coen brothers who have made so many great films, it's like, of all of their films, the only one I personally like more than Fargo is The Big Lebowski. Right. So of a canon of films of directors that are beloved, it's arguably the best, <laughs> right? Yes. So yeah. So anyway, all of that is to say that it would have been tough sledding to propose this kind of TV show because of how the fans would... Like, you got to do it right <laughs> and it has to yeah it's like you're not just making a tv show yeah. at this point mm-hmm. you're you're dealing with source material that you almost always let people down when you deal with source material like this so to not let people down yeah. and in fact have the fans maybe even like the tv s- series now more than mm-hmm. the original film is i think a feat in and of itself well that's such an interesting point because it just occurred to me that yeah like this is a almost a perfect case study of the difference between what you can do in a movie and what you can do in a show Yes. Right? Yes. Because well, it's like we've, we've discussed this in yeah. Watchmen and in various episodes, but the art form thing, mm-hmm. like what you're able, and that's arguably why television has supplanted mm-hmm. the film in a lot of people's right. minds, certainly right. in the in the tw- 2010s. What are we calling though, that decade? The 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 preteen teens? Like the, the preteen teens? The teens. Oh, you know what? As yeah. a funny aside, I was just thinking about this the other day on a bike ride. I was realizing, obviously, with the year being 2020 and so many other things going on right now, this is a funny thing, like, I guess we're going to have to stop saying the 20s to be referring to the 1920s. Yeah, because we're in the in the 20s <laughs> yeah. now. So it's like the roaring 20s. Twi- well, wait a minute. Oh, wait. <laughs> the roaring 1920s. <laughs> I just, I honestly, because it's like, basically, uh, culturally, we, dr- we've, we dropped the 19 from yeah. every decade. Now we have to put it back century. on because we've yeah. moved into them, yeah. Yeah, so I just thought that was funny. Oh, that is funny. <laughs> so, so I don't know what we call them, but the, uh, you know, 2010 to, to 2019 mm-hmm. was certainly a time where I be- I came to appreciate television. Mm-hmm. Far- Fargo, True Detective, yeah. The Wire. Right, well, The Wire was before that, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, The Wire was like, I think maybe oh. Two or oh three to like so really it's been about twenty years because I kind of a lot of people kind of peg it at the wire Mm -hmm. right that was the beginning of this yeah yeah yeah. well that was like one of the first intricate I mean Sopranos too but that was still like kind of one family yeah the wire had so many characters that they were following the narratives of and like characters were coming in and out and dying so it's like main characters were just dying and then you're like oh okay I guess there's somebody else we're following now kind of thing yeah. So anyway, the reason that this is such an interesting experiment of a show is that it is basically compared to a movie. And the movie, you know, even a feature length is about two hours. But with 10 episodes, like a season of Fargo is about 10 hours. So you can just be a lot more patient in your storytelling. And I think I'm. it's just occurring to me now, I think the reason 
why I kind of like season two. I think I think season two has more philosophical questions in it than the first season does. So obviously I'm a little more naturally, uh, I gravitate towards that a little more naturally. But the plot of the film and the plot of season one are not that different. Like in the film, there's a kind of down on his luck, middle class guy who does something awful right and then gets mixed up with the wrong people because of that yeah and in season one there's a down on his luck middle class guy and i mean it's like it's not even subtle in the movie his last name's lundegaard and in the first season of the show his nygaard right. <laughs> right right so he's a down on his luck middle class guy who gets mixed up with the wrong people yeah etc right uh, whereas a series of events and then, then unfold from that and then also in all of in all the seasons there's a very clear like this isn't a cop show, but there's always cops in the show and they're major characters in the show, right? And I just think in season two, it kind of went off in different directions from what we'd seen before in the Fargo lore. Yeah. And so that was kind of cool, I thought. So anyway, that's why we're doing this show, like honestly. And so I've seen it through twice. I saw it through in 2015. I've seen it through again now preparing for this, but this was your first time. Yes, this was my first time. And um, I guess I feel, and I'm sure you feel this way too, I get some validation, I think, when I suggest a story for the podcast that you haven't come across or read or watched before. And so you are like kind of, in a sense, taking my recommendation on faith that it will be a good, and I feel like you feel like this was a good choice. Yes, I... uh... (laughs) I th- yeah, I've not forgotten, I think, that maybe just uh, not thought about for a while the joy that you can get from a really new and powerful story. In books, obviously, we've done a lot of those that I've talked about on the podcast, but this show, it's just so good. Like, mm-hmm. yes. like everything, um, like, the cinematography, <laughs> the storytelling, the acting, the dialogue. The editing. Um, yeah, like it's as close to flawless as you can get. Yeah, that would be a good and, way to put it. And it engages you on multiple emotional levels. Mm-hmm. There's great suspense building, but also, you know, it keeps you engaged the entire time. Yeah. Like this is a show that you could watch all in one day. And there are like seven gripping more or less main characters yes (laughs) like yeah like i mean there's one who i would say is the main main character but the other secondary one like they're a level between primary and secondary characters they're just on the screen so much and they're so powerful in their presence so anyway oh yeah and like the other thing is the themes that are being addressed here yeah are not like they're high level there are yeah there is very significant this is why I say it's the golden age of television, too. The themes that television shows decided to address in this time period were the most significant themes that mm. I think television had yes. ever addressed. Yes. Whether it be drugs and addiction and, you know, morality mm-hmm. in the wire or, right. or, or you know, de- death and, you know, dying well or dying poorly and breaking mm. bad yep. and, um, and meaning and purpose and validation and ego and ego like or or in this show uh dealing with like the senselessness mm. of a seemingly uncaring universe right uh which is i'd say the main theme but beyond that more, again morality yeah you know and disease <laughs> uh 
Oh, um, self-creation. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the idea that, you know, you're not a, a full person unless you're being actualized. Yeah, of course. Um, and then, of course, discontentment with your current condition, mm-hmm. which drives the kind of actions that can spiral right. an entire society out of control, essentially. Yeah. You know what it reminds me of? It's and it, this is why I love. I really love this podcast. Is because every time we talk, it just I, things come to my mind <laughs> that I hadn't thought about until you bring. So, the golden age of television and Fargo is a great example. Maybe Fargo is to television what I feel in their prime Pearl Jam was to music. And here's the connection: is that like Pearl Jam and Nirvana and the whole grunge movement? I think was like a countercultural revolt against the popular music of the '80s, which is arena rock, big hair, a big show. You got your Bon Jovis, your Motley Crues, right? Like it's all just, it's a spectacle. Right. And what the grunge bands did, I think, is that they took the kind of phony, airy-fairy, all-for-show spectacle of the arena rock and brought it all back down to like a garage or a, a gritty club and still played songs that people loved, and they loved even more because they were so much more visceral and real and to the heart, but without sacrificing any of the musicality of the rock music that people loved in the 80s. So, And so maybe the golden age of television <laughs> is a reaction to the 90s. Yeah, yeah, right? like which the, was like the friends, the, oh, the and sitcoms the, of the yeah. world. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 like the kind of mm, I don't want to call it fake exactly, but a, a veneer between yeah. um, like you don't need to it, TV doesn't have to be pure escapism, right? It right. can be a reflection of the human condition. Yes, that's a great way of putting <laughs> it. And so, sorry, just to close the door on the Pearl Jam analogy. So, and I'm sure there there were other. There were other bands that were doing this before Pearl Jam, but I'm just using them as an example because I don't know if there are any bands that got as famous as Pearl Jam that did this. So Pearl Jam releases their album 10 in 1991 and pre- previous to 10 in 1991 and Nirvana's Nevermind too. You know, the hits of the previous decade had been song, like Living on a Prayer. Right. Like, what does that mean? Right, right. Like, right. Like, Motley Crue, girls, girls, girls. Okay, we get it. <laughs> Dr. Feelgood, Kickstart My Heart, Drugs. Like just this kind of hedonistic pseudo-nihilism, right? Right. Pearl Jam releases 10. They have songs on it. Even Flow, which is a song about the tragedy of homelessness. Right. They have a song called Alive, which is about reconnecting with an estranged father. And they have Jeremy, which is about bullying to suicide. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Right? So these are their three biggest hits on the biggest album of the year, arguably. That one and Nevermind. And they're all about the tragedy of life. Not about right. <laughs> living on a prayer, right? So it's right. like these huge rock anthems that are about some of these terribly deep and meaningful themes that people hadn't really addressed before, as far as being that famous, right? <laughs> and singing yeah. songs like that, and then even later, like their song "Better Man" is about abusive relationship, <laughs> and like you'll right. find someone better. Can't find a better man. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, that's why I like this podcast. It's because you're, right. and <laughs> no, so I would say Fargo is in some sense an equivalent of that. It's like, oh, you think that you you want you just need this dumbass comedy and like the Big Bang Theory type of thing, right? Or or like yeah, or some like mindless action mm-hmm. film. Well, we'll give yeah. you action, yeah, and we'll give you thought pro- and and every aspect of that action is going to be thrown we'll give you a show that's terrible but still has good men doing something yes yeah <laughs> yeah 
So, plot rundown. Well, plot rundown of season two of Fargo. Season two of Fargo is set in 1979. The three main locales are Fargo, North, North Dakota, the small town in Minnesota called Laverne, and then also um, the last couple episodes take place in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. So those three locations make up the majority of the locales of the show. In Fargo, there's this family called the Gerhardt family who are kind of the local crime lords. And they've been that way since, I think they said the 1930s or 19, maybe even earlier. Essentially, grand- their grandfather came over after World War One, yeah. and established a crime empire right. that, that he was then killed mm-hmm. because of it. His son took over, and yeah. they've been running crime in the Dakotas yeah. for... And- and, and I guess some Minnesota. like the whole Midwest kind of like yeah, Minnesota yeah. too, right? And so they mostly they they run the trucks, so they smuggle drugs over the trucks. So they're the, they're the like organized crime of the you know mid North Midwest of the United States, and they've been that way for fifty years it seems like. And so a lot of the tension early in the show comes from the the basically the mob slash financial district people of Kansas City want to take over the trucking because they're just way richer and they're more modern we just want to increase our you know profit Uh, so they basically are telling this Gerhard family that hey well you can we we can either buy it from you and we'll own it or probably if if that doesn't work we'll fight you for it yeah we'll just kill you so there's all of this like legacy and stuff that's going on but the youngest Gerhard Rye is this very kind of temperamental little man syndrome, it feels like. And so the whole plot is kicked off when he follows a judge that he's trying to get to over... He wants this judge to overturn one of her verdicts to help him and his buddy make a whole bunch of money selling electric typewriters. So it's like such... It's small potatoes, but he wants to feel like he's contributing, right? And has his own thing. He's not just in the shadow of his dad and his older brothers. So he follows this judge down to a diner near Laverne, Minnesota. And because he's egotistical and not very well thought out, he kills the judge and he kills two other people in the diner. And so there's these three murders that have happened now in Minnesota. And as he's leaving the diner to run away, he sees an alien spacecraft, follows it down the road and gets hit by a car, gets stuck in a car window and the car drives off. That's like the opening kind of segment of the first episode of the season two of Fargo. Lou Salverson, played by Patrick Wilson, is one of the state troopers who finds this, and it's in his jurisdiction, him and his father-in-law, who's the sheriff of the town. So they're like the first police to find this crime scene, but the perpetrator is not there anymore. And it turns out that rye was hit by a car by this woman named peggy bloomquist played by kirsten dunst and she brings him instead of going to the hospital or to like the police station she just drives to her house and goes into the garage and goes into the garage and, and so just leaves him there yeah just blood and glass everywhere and because he's so violent when peggy's husband ed played by jesse plemons who just does such an awesome job in this show he has to end up killing him <laughs> so rod gerhardt is dead and so what transpires for like the majority of the rest of the show is the Gerhardts trying to find out who killed their, or what happened to their son and who killed him. The cops of this Minnesota town trying to figure out who killed these people in the diner. So the Gerhardts and the cops are looking for the same person, right. basically. Yeah. And the Kansas City mob trying to take over the Gerhardts outfit in the meantime. But then this gets complicated when the Gerhardts tell the mom that it was the Kansas City mob who did it to their son. Which so means that she goes to war. Which means she goes the- to war with them. So she's like, basically, there's kind of like three major factions in the show. The cops, 
the Gerhards and the Kansas City mob. And the Gerhards, it's the mom, and there's three boys, but Rye is killed, so there's only two. And then there's the Kansas City mob, and the face of that for the show for us is this guy named Mike Milligan, who is just so fucking incredible. It's unbelievable how amazing he is, which is the joke off the top. And then the cops are led by this Lou Salverson, his father-in-law Hank, and then a couple other cops that come in and out of the situation based on where they have to be. And on top of all that, the Gerhards have a Native American hand or helper named Hansi, who becomes kind of the actual main point of the show by the end of it, which is kind of awesome, actually. I don't want to say too much about what happens because it's just such a joy to watch, but all of these different factions interact in plausible plot ways with just great writing to have this massive culmination at the end of the show where there's just a big shootout in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and by the end, all the Gerhards are dead except the one grandson and... All these cops are dead who were just so stupid that they didn't listen to Lou. And Lou saves his father-in-law and um, and, and Peggy. Peggy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah. without not Lou, Ed. yeah, without Lou, there would have been a couple more deaths. <laughs> a couple more. Well, and that and that's interesting because we see that that's really how Lou thinks about it. He mm-hmm. sees these people from his town uh, as you know his responsibility to protect. Yeah. Uh, as a police officer, that's his job, and this is what upsets him the most: mm-hmm. is seeing what he feels like them being used as bait. Yeah, and a, but we can get to that later. Yeah, well, and so I am so excited to talk about this, but like, please go watch this show. Yes. It, it is so good, and it's on Netflix right now, at least in Canada. So pause, go watch, come back and listen. So today, in part one, we're going to talk about. Uh, Lou, and the things that struck us about him, uh, ostensibly the main character, Patrick Wilson, who just does such a phenomenal job. Like, I think this might be the best role of his career that I've seen him in, and he's a great actor. And then we're going to talk a little bit about the other, what I'm calling the heroes of the show, even though they're not main characters, but Lou's wife, Betsy, and his father-in-law, Hank, and a couple of other of the local townspeople of the small town in Laverne, Minnesota. And then we're going to talk about Mike Milligan today. And then in part two, we're going to talk about Peg and <laughs> Peg, Peggy and Ed, and the Gerhards and the show itself, because otherwise this will episode will be way too long. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, Lou Salverson. Here's the the scene I want to set the stage with to anchor the way I think about him, and I want to see how that is towards how you think about him. And this is a scene I remember so vividly from even the first time I watched it, like five years ago. And I think it's either it's either in the second or the third episode, and he is driving up. He he goes to the Gerhardt farm with one of the local cops because they found the gun found at the crime scene in Laverne, Minnesota, at the Waffle House that where the Betsy found happened, that Betsy yeah. found his wife had Rye Gerhardt's fingerprints on it. So people were shot. Gun was found. This guy's fingerprints. Known crime family. Okay, yeah, we're gonna go talk to them on their farm compound in near Fargo. And this, the way that it's shot, it's like they drive up. There's about a dozen armed men, all like holding either AK-47s or pistols, just standing around watching these two cops go up to talk to Floyd, who is the, it's a female. It's the name of the mom. And you can tell that the local cop is just kind of like, he's not the boss, right? The Gerhardt yeah. family is the boss. <laughs> he, he knows that, you know... 
they run the town that exactly, he's from. Exactly, exactly. He's, he's almost showing up as a supplicant. Yes. Lou is noticing this weakness on the part of Ben, the other cop with them, the local cop. And he's noticing that the, the Gerhardt family is kind of like being able to tell dictate the situation versus the other way around considering they're the cops and he has a sign that says am i the only one here who's clear on the concept of law enforcement <laughs> and he's saying that individually to a crowd of like 12 men with guns yeah like, <laughs> like not afraid at like all just the the fortitude he's showing and then the the second part of that is when dodd shows up and dodd is the oldest living son of the gerharts and he is the most sadistic of them except it turns out Hansi. <laughs> yeah yeah but he's just like we're let like the whole show dot is this guy who's just not he's got no mercy basically it's all hard assery all the way down and he's mad at ben for saying it could have been rye who did these like we we're in charge of you you don't come here and say my brother is a murderer here right and then lou says to him to dot now to be fair i'm the one who found the gun so you'd be dancing with the wrong girl <laughs> And so my initial lead-in to Lou is, this guy is such a fucking mensch. Hey, this is a man. (laughs) This is a man. Yeah, in every sense of what a man should be. Yes, exactly. He's he's calm. Yeah. I don't think we ever see him lose his temper in Mm. the entire film. No. Not even lose his cool. Um, And and he had ample opportunity to. (laughs) Yeah, oh, I mean, like, how could you not? Well, sorry, we do see him lose his temper at one point. Mm. And it's when he, he doesn't want Ed... And uh, Peggy to have to become bait any any kind right and he, yeah and then he yeah, gets yeah. kicked out of the mm. some righteous anger there yeah though. it's righteous anger but other than that he is calm cool collected and okay so they actually the um the scene that sticks with me is, okay is yeah quite different actually and it's when he and his wife are sitting in the doctor's office. And the doctor's essentially like, things are getting a lot worse. Because uh, his is, wife has cancer. Yes. yes. Has uh, leuke- leukemia. No, she has um, lymphoma. And they're sitting there, and the doctor's essentially like, we uh, we have this test that we're doing. Right? We'll give, we give the real pills to some people, and we give the... You know, placebos. The placebos to others. And, you know, and then she's like, well, am I going to get the real pills? And he's like, well, I can't tell you that. And... Even though he already told them that there would be placebo. (laughs) And and Lou's just sitting there, doesn't lose his shit. And as they're leaving, he says to his wife, he says, do you want me to treat you differently? Mm -hmm. Like, he so well understands the situation and is so in tune with her, but he's so concerned that they're going through this together that he's like, I need to know whether you want things to be different or if you want them to stay the same and and then she's like no she doesn't want that and and mm. it's such an attunement to her yeah and to her needs but not a he doesn't allow his sorrow his obvious sorrow over this whole situation mm. to change or to he doesn't wallow in his own sorrow he's thinking about her yeah right right yeah he just he's so good at paying attention to what is required of him in any, in any given moment. situation yeah. right because so the other one that i love is basically when the gerhards find out when they find out that charlie's been arrested and he's in the prison mm. and the gerhards like 20 of them show up and like <laughs> basically lay siege to the prison or right to the, yes, to the yeah. cop shop yeah as soon as he finds out that's happening he's like all right go turn off the lights lock the doors like yeah get everything like he, it's just 
immediate, oh, here are the practical steps that we now need to take based on the situation that we're mm-hmm. in. And I, I uh, oh man, I could go on and on, but. Well, it's like, because he's the kind of, well, I mean, it's, it makes sense. He's a cop, I guess, but he's a, he's got the kind of personality and temperament that he would naturally or organically garner respect and admiration from the people around him because he knows what to do. He knows what next steps to take in a crisis. He, he stays calm and it's not that he's not afraid, but he's just got enough skill to maneuver through his own fear right like he yeah he's um he's built a level of competence that yeah. he can rely on mm-hmm. yeah and so like that's all that's such a good setup and and then and then we learn i think in the second episode on top of all of that he's actually a vietnam war vet and has seen some crazy right stuff. yeah and so there's some great conversational scenes early on between him and hank because hank his father-in-law served in world war ii and Lou served in the Vietnam War. So they actually are swapping some war stories. And I guess like one of the first things to kind of interestingly talk about, because I mean, and obviously we, you and I will have no <laughs> knowledge of this because we've never been to war. But one of the things that I thought was so interesting psychologically for these two guys was how they were relating things that they had seen in their own specific war experiences to things that they were now seeing either in their police work or in civilian life. And just the kind of like, and I don't even know if there's a word for it. It, It's like a weird, vivid memory that just, or even reverie that takes you back. So Lou talks about how the bafflement of the cook who died in the Waffle House in Minnesota reminds him of this guy who got shot through a cigar he was smoking in Vietnam. and And his dying look wasn't, fear it was bafflement because they were like on a ship right yeah it was like a one in a million shot and hank talks about how when he walked into this one concentration camp that they were liberating in world war ii he saw a german commandant hanging like hung he hung himself and he was just swinging and so then when he saw it happen as a cop like a, a decade and a half later it was like just like these like it's not. It's one of the most interesting and least fleshed out aspects of this show in season two is the army background and what it does to these guys. Right? Well, and yeah, it's and it's, it's it's danced on a little bit, and so I I wanted to talk about that first, I guess, like the 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 war background to these guys and what it makes them like in civilian life. Well, and that's the uh, I think it's a very um, what's the best? It's interesting because. Hansy's also been yes, in the war. Yes, and he goes a different way, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, <laughs> and a, a number of them have been in the war, right? And, yes. and so it's not praising what I like about the character sketches, let's call them in this film, and particularly the character sketches of, of Lou and Hank, are is threefold. First, they have seen the worst mm, of yes. humanity. Yeah. And uh, not only have they seen it, in war but they've seen it at home i love that line from hank where he says sometimes i think you guys brought that war back with you yeah right the vietnam guys it was like unfinished and And less and less morally clear yeah but especially by the end of it yeah. yeah and even when um Lou is driving back with peggy at the very end and he's telling the story about the the evacuation 
and the miracle of the evacuation where like that this whole family was came in on the Chinook helicopter and they mm. couldn't land it on the boat so he's hovering yeah, yeah, over yeah. and they're jumping and tossing people and then the pilot you know crashes the helicopter into the sea and somehow survives himself and and he, and, yeah. he, and then that compared to the so many great stories yeah. eh <laughs> yeah. so many great stories and that compared to the senseless deaths that he's experiencing in his home country, like, mm-hmm. uh, just seems, I think you could just tell that he's trying to process what's going on yeah, in the yeah, universe. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up, though, because that, that made me think about it this way. Yeah, Hansi was in Vietnam, and Hansi is, I mean, the vernacular at the time throughout the show, they call him the Indian. You know, he's Native American, and he snaps by the end, <laughs> basically is responsible for many deaths. And I think there's probably a few other characters in the show who served in Vietnam as well, because it's, you know, 79 would have only been what, like four years? At, did the war end in 73 or 75? I can't remember. I don't remember. I haven't so done enough So with four or six Vietnam years war. after Vietnam, because we don't remember. So, you know, all these guys are late 30s, early 40s who served there probably kind of thing, right? And our heroes are very hopeful characters in this show in the sense that Lou... And Hank, especially, they've somehow managed to you, go you through the shit. Hopeful or wholesome? Uh, I I think they're both. They're definitely wholesome. They're more they're more obviously wholesome than right, they are hopeful. Right. <laughs> I think what I'm maybe prying at here is I think the hopeful part, at least for these two in this context, is that they manage to go through the worst things humans can go through war, and come back and not suppress it or repress it or pretend it doesn't happen like a lot of people in vietnam did you know like people didn't talk about their experiences in vietnam because they're so horrible they let the experiences out as they need to come out and because of that they don't let it destroy their lives and they're both able to move on and kind of continue to live meaningfully in ways that they are not always choosing for themselves but more or less you know like the kind of master of their own fates lives yeah. Right. Yeah. Because presumably there's enough that happens in all of this for Lou to snap. Well, they seem. Yeah. <laughs> and, they, well, and he doesn't. So, he stays the course, right? And I think that's a testament to like what you just said. They seem to have both, both Hank and Lou, dealt with. Mm-hmm. And to I guess to an extent, Mike or are or not dealing Mike, with. Um, yeah, they're figuring it out. And as you said, each time that the story needs to come out, it does come out. But like. There's that moment where Hank sits down and says, do you want to talk about it? And Lou says, not really. Yeah. But, but then, then he, he does, does talk about <laughs> yeah. it, right? Well, and, and part of that is Hank knowing in the same way Lou knows how to approach Betsy, Hank knows how to approach Lou. Right? I also love the relationship between Hank and Lou because it's such a man, <laughs> yeah. like in the, in the quintessential cliche mm-hmm. way, they're not, you know, deep talkers. They're not, uh, they're, they're quiet strong men Mm -hmm. but they obviously have deep affection for one another i kind of see them as less cynical hemingways yeah (laughs) and there's the joke right there's the joke about the souffle yeah that they both you know Mm -hmm. quietly find hilarious and they're not like i mean they're not like me right i think that's one thing that (laughs) that but i can appreciate them immensely Mm -hmm. right i'm not a quiet man in case any of you didn't know this and i can be more passionate perhaps than i am serene Right, uh, but I admire mm-hmm. that kind of strength and yeah. quiet. And there's a lot to be said 
for holding your temper, holding mm-hmm. your holding the course. Here's a very kind of cashed out awesome thing about Lou, I think, that he's managed to settle in in his life is that he always knows what situation he's in and he always knows what to do in that situation that he's in. So he's very discerning about the geographical, social, or political scenario that he's in and he always knows what to do in that situation. And the only time he kind of does it, like this is why it's so awesome at I guess it's the ninth episode. The only real part of the show where we see uh, Lou brushing up against powerlessness and helplessness is when he's outranked by that one South Dakotan cop who says, you're out of here, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And and, he, and Lou, in his gut, knows that they're not doing the right thing for Peggy and Ed, basically, who are locals of the town that Lou is from. He knows them. And... That's why it's such a powerful scene when we see Lou turn his car back around and go back. Like he's escorted to the state line. He's like, I just can't do this. And he goes back. That's maybe the best example of like, oh, I'm in a scenario now where I have to like disobey essentially the like structure of jurisdiction. Well, but, and, and Hank brings that up too, right? But I can't not too, do that. Right? He's having the conversation with that same lieutenant. And he's like, I'm not going to have an argument with you about the, you know, the veracity of obeying orders, right? He said, but I will tell you, I had a lieutenant that cursed out Eisenhower himself, I think it was. Yes. Because he was going to get us all killed. And I still send that man a Christmas card mm-hmm. every year because I can. Yeah. Well, see, that's... um. That's such a good point about Hank, though. I mean, what that also suggests about this type of person we're talking about in Lou and Hank, but more in Lou because he's in the show more. Well, in one sense, they're patriots. They fought for their country, but they're not meatheads. So they're like, they have fortitude and courage, but they're not stupid and foolhardy either. Now, you could say maybe it's foolhardy for Lou to talk that forthrightly in the group of all these guys with guns. But I mean, like, obviously, the Gerhards don't want a swarm of cops coming down on them because they killed a cop. No, <laughs> right? Like, no. And he knows that. And he's like, look, this is why I think Lou deserves my admiration, is that he knows that it's just as important for him to be law enforcement when it's dangerous and scary as it is for when it's calm and serene right it's just as important to be a soldier and in that same way in that inverse way that hank is doing it he knows it's just as important as his commanding officer did to ethically disobey an order if it's totally foolish uninformed and it's just going to be unnecessarily taking lives that don't need to be taken you know face the court after that versus put people's lives in danger and i mean that's kind of what lou that's the same kind of epiphany lou is having when he goes back to sioux falls to try and help yeah right yeah and i was just thinking about it like so it's like a dynamic way these men have been forged but they haven't been forged just by their experience because really your reaction to your experience is what determines what kind of metal comes out of it and in the case of these men, you know, we, we see a strength of character, a wholesomeness, a a commitment to, I don't know, the light, let's call it, right? Mm-hmm. Like a commitment to, to being good and to maintaining order and stability and, you know, in the face of horrific 
things like cancer or murder yeah. or yeah, yeah, yeah. you know gangs that are could torture you and destroy you they stand up mm-hmm. and they say no you know not on my watch yeah right not while i'm here mm-hmm. whereas what happens and there's all kinds of questions now, this is why this is such a brilliant show its depth is you can't plumb its whole depths. No. What happens to Hansi, <laughs> who has also been to war, but has been, spent his whole life being treated as a second-class citizen? He tells yeah. that story, yeah, yeah, and we'll yeah. get into this in the next episode. But I want to I want to bring it up here because I think it's important. He tells the story about how he was treated in Vietnam. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And how he's always been treated mm-hmm. every moment of his life. Mm-hmm. And even in that, we see, okay... Could he have reacted differently? Yeah. Maybe. Right. But it's a lot easier for Hank mm-hmm. and Lou. I'm glad you made that point because it's not about Hansi, but another obvious big <laughs> aspect of America, let's say in the 60s, was the civil rights movement. And this is more to lose credit because there's a scene where he's actually talking to Mike Milligan, the KC mob guy, and Mike is a black man. And... Lou and Ben, the other cop, have got the jump on him and this, the kitchen brother who are thugs. So they, they've got the guns on the crooks, but they don't have any evidence. So it's like now they're just kind of parlaying. And actually some of the funniest conversations are between Mike and Lou, who's Lou is the straight man with a sense of humor. And Mike is the comedian humorous with a very deeply <laughs> straight and serious side to him. Yes, yes. <laughs> so they're like inverses of each other. And Lou says something to Mike where he says, there's just some things that shouldn't be owned. And Mike, in his very tongue-in-cheek, but not really, says like, hmm, maybe like people? (laughs) Now, obviously, (laughs) being black, he's (laughs) quoting the original sin of the United States. And Lou, understanding the subtext, obviously, (laughs) is like, well, that that is a good example of something. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And so it's like, clearly Lou himself is never motivated by any of these things that we might legitimately modernly call hate, right? Like he's not motivated by, like like he's not racist, he's not sexist, he's not bigoted in any foreseeable way. He's world weary at injustice and sadness and tragedy, but choosing to not let that defeat him and always be working against it. Well, and right. I like that the, you know, the myth of Sisyphus yes. plays such a... Yeah, I knew that that would... <laughs> an underlying yeah. uh, theme here mm-hmm. because, I mean, it is kind of a modern retelling oh, yes. of that myth. Yes. Uh, and we see that Lou is Sisyphus, mm-hmm. right? And yet he has accomplished what Camus says we need to accomplish. What Sisyphus can do at his best when he's walking back down yeah. the hill yeah and we see that while a quiet man lou is not is not an unthoughtful man no he is con- he is constantly contemplating things mm-hmm. and not only that i think though it's like you said it's not a, a, a cop show watching him quickly and insightfully analyze crime scenes and mm-hmm. find the evidence which tells him was well, the, the the discerning eye exactly his, his is the aperture of the discerning mind. Yeah, his his perceptiveness is amazing yeah. to behold. Yeah, and this is more a narrative storytelling part of the show is that none of the things that Lou does that we're supposed to like were hit on the head with. No, right? It's all perfectly put in to the writing 
of how the screenplay is going to play out, even just the way he moves, the way he looks around. He's not like, oh, there's evidence. He doesn't explain anything to no. us. This is not a this is not a Sherlock walking us through yeah. his deductive reasoning. It's visually they walk mm. us through the deductive reasoning. Yeah. Yeah. One of the reasons I love this show so much is it's as light on exposition as any show is. There is a little bit in the ninth episode where it's like the story of Sioux Falls, 1979. Right, yeah, yeah. But like... I think that's, again, self-aware tongue-in-cheek is that this show never does that. So to throw it in that way, kind of in that funny way. Anyway, that's so all of that is storytelling, not Lou himself. But it's good storytelling to have all of these things about Lou are have to be insightful, like incited to about his character, right? Well, there's even that moment where Hank says there's a shoe in that tree. And at first you're like, <laughs> well, what the hell? Like, why does that matter? Like, how'd the shoe get up there? We don't know. But yeah. like... But it turns out yeah. he's actually being perceptive mm-hmm. and not just distracted. Mm-hmm. And so then, again, this is just a beautiful Fargo thing, the, sh- the the show creation thing. All of the dialogue and all of the characters' interaction with the plot is organic and emergent. Zero gratuity, zero hand-waving, zero, oh, that was convenient kind of things of the plot, right? Like, it's like as far as a piece of fiction goes, like, yeah, this makes sense. Yeah. This is plausible. Yeah. <laughs> this is like, yeah, good cops would find that. Yes. <laughs> you know, yes, like all exactly. that kind of thing. Well, and, and the evidence, you're like, of course, if it had rained, the, you know, mm-hmm. the, the space would be dry. Well, and we'll talk about this next episode more, but like that opening scene where you see the car hit Rye and then just drive away. And at first you're like, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> like who would do that? But then as we learn about the kind of person Peggy is, we're like, Oh, oh, that kind of person. Very good. Yeah. Very good. That's a good character sketch of him. So, Lou's the straight man. He is the forthright, fortitudinal. But this was some of my favorite things about, and this is again a Fargo thing, but he's not without his sense of humor. No. <laughs> right? No. So, well, bring your bring your suit of so, armor. <laughs> so here's the here's the scene I want to bring out as this is this the one I noticed the most. So he's and it's because it's 1979. Uh, there's you know topically a recession going on in the United States. So they're complaining about having to line up to fill their cars up with gas, right? And he lines up and he's behind this one guy and he's it's his cop car and this guy in front is like strange happenings, strange happenings, things flying around in the sky, unidentified objects, strange happenings and. And I don't think they're they're here to hurt us. They're, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because we see a alien craft in the very first episode and the very last or second last one. And so, <laughs> do not understand why that was put in the show. But anyway, well, I, we'll talk about yeah, it yeah. next episode. <laughs> and so, what Lou says when this guy is telling him all these things, like strange happenings. Hey, I wondered what it was. <laughs> So he's like kind of whist because he's just seen all these terrible murders. Yeah, and yeah. so he's like, it's kind of like a a cathartic gallows not gallows humor exactly but it's just like how to how to laugh again after seeing all this tragedy right because like comedy is just the other side of tragedy they're so thinly sliced from each other and then he goes home and you'll like this especially because hank and betsy his wife who's hank's daughter are playing crib or cribbage and it's like you see the wholesomeness of their family life Uh, yeah i wanted to this is one of the things i wanted to talk about because the joke the joke that Lou makes as the camera's kind of like backing up and fading out to the end of the scene is, oh, are you playing cribbage or hold your horses? 
Like, such good, clever trash, good, clean, clever trash talk. Yeah, and and then, and then Hank is like, oh, you know, she's definitely cheating mm-hmm. at Peggy. And then Peggy has a reaction that anyone would in that moment. Oh, really? I'm cheating, am I? Like- <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Betsy. Yeah, yes, yeah, okay. That's what I mean. Yeah. Betsy, so, yeah, and, Betsy and says that. This yeah. is more relevant, like, because you and your family play a lot of crib. Yes. Well, <laughs> so. I know, but I mean, it was a very personally touched. But also, it, it made me think of... Oh man, I, I, this will be more in the next episode. But Northern peoples and yeah. how we interact with the world—that's mm. different, I think, than uh, than people who spend a lot of time outside, right? Mm. Because things like well, yeah, we got like four months where we just don't go outside. Yeah, so it's <laughs> like so we have rituals and habits that are kind of. I think that's one of my favorite things about Fargo, and what a lot of people like about Fargo is it really is able to draw out in the context of these violent crimes, right? the everyday lives of people in these communities. (laughs) Sure, yeah. And so why that kind of stuck to me in regards to like the kind of person that we're appreciating about Lou is that, and maybe this is just me projecting, I, I don't like the dichotomy between the serious person or the goofball. Do you know what I mean? Like I don't like that if you have to be taken seriously you have to be serious all the time or if you are going to be funny you have to be funny i don't know like it's like i mean and we certainly see this kind of flipped very even more starkly with mike which we'll talk about when we get to him but i I guess i've just been thinking a little bit about this idea that like because you know this idea i have called deep sincerity about like how to like really authentically interact with people especially in a digital online age in a way that they can trust you but what you don't want to be and i can't remember which philosopher talked about this but the danger of becoming the serious man like capitalized and the serious man is someone who is unable to both recognize and appreciate the irony and the comedy in their lives even as they go through it seriously and with intention well, this is funny because I think Luke that is can. a danger. I think yes, that is a danger. Yeah. I mean, I even sometimes find myself slipping into it. You'll get into a, <laughs> a deep conversation and then someone will make a joke mm-hmm. and it will go right over my head and I'll and I'll keep going along the lines of whatever I was on. Right. And that's a sad because to miss those moments yeah. of humor and mm-hmm. happiness, I think is, is sometimes to miss some of the most joyful stuff about being human. And I, I love yeah. that you so noticed the cribbage like yes like it's such a subtle like you said there's so little exposition here Mm -hmm. which i love yeah which is actually the opposite of one of the other shows that i think we'll do eventually that i love which is there's a ton of exposition in true detective right right yeah but it's different it's a very different they're they're serving different yeah, they're they're serving different purposes. Yeah, um, but I agree that is a danger, and I but and I like that because I mean, even for yourself, you're obviously a very serious thinker, but you're a funny guy. Yeah, right. And those two things are not impossible to have in the same. No, person. and I would say they are like in a sense, kind of. Well, I don't want to say imperative exactly because I don't want to like, hey, if you're not funny, I'm not going to take you seriously, <laughs> right. kind of right. thing. But the ability to detach yourself enough to kind of see the humor in things, so to not take yourself too seriously. So it's like, I I mean, this is kind of my philosophy on podcasting even, is that I'm going to take the material and the content content seriously, but I want to do it in an informal matter. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Again, this is part of Lou knowing the situation he's in. He's with his family. 
and family is about the glue of life. And humor is, there's no stickier human glue <laughs> than <Ooh>. humor. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. And just this ability, because part of what humor is doing, and, and humor is, okay, so let's get really into analyzing how Lou is using humor in this moment. Lou is feigning ignorance on the game that is being played when he clearly knows the game that's being played at the expense of someone else in that game. Right, right. right. So I can't remember if it was Betsy or Hank or it was way behind. I think it was Hank. And so he's like, oh, you're playing cribbage or hold your horses? (laughs) Now, no one in the room actually thinks Lou doesn't know what game they're playing, (laughs) right? So what's actually happening is Lou is signaling to both Betsy and Hank that he knows what's happening, pretending not to, simply to very mildly roast Hank or, you know, tease him. And then at the next order of thinking, he's only even able to do that in the first place because he has the kind of relationship with both Betsy and Hank that allows them to know how he is in general. So to not be offended by this kind of thing, because they know that even though it's on the surface a roast, it's actually a, like an implant of care. It's almost like a signal, like, uh, so I, I'm you paying know, attention. Yeah. And it's also like, I care about you so much that I can get away with this. Yes. Right. <laughs> and you care about me so much. And I know that you know. So it's like, it's just in so many different layers, an affirmation of love and friendship and community that is signaled by a single line humorously well, played. Yeah. And this is why I'm, t- this is why humor to me is the most important joke of life right because if i would phrase it such a way is that it's how you signal your relationship often with other people and that's what lou is doing and on top of that us as a more like objective third-party observer of lou is like oh this is someone who knows what situation to be in and how to act appropriately and humor is one of those aspects of life that's super important Mm -hmm. and so that's why I like that's how he's not the serious man, right? Because he's a he's a candidate for the serious man who just goes through life without any joy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so I just think that that's such a crucial part of him. And Hank too, right? Yes. Well, I mean, we, we see that humor in the even in how they just interact with one another, mm-hmm. right? And that's the cool part, because at first you're like, you you don't know their relationship right away. Right. And then you're like, they obviously and then he's like, you should come over for dinner. You know, Betsy's cooking. <laughs> uh, she, You know, she got this new, you know, food of the world. Yeah, so yeah, we get yeah, a new yeah. dish every night. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like, they know Betsy both probably more intimately than any other person in the yeah, world. Exactly. And uh, and they're, they are riffing off of that common shared understanding of another person mm-hmm. and joking about it. Yeah. And that's one of the the greatest things you can do with <laughs> friends or yeah. family is yeah. is talk about people you know. Yeah. And I mean, there's that that old saying, you know, that stupid people talk about events, normal people talk about people, smart people talk about ideas. I don't know if I agree with that wholeheartedly. Mm. I think one of the most intimate and shared human experiences is talking about other people yeah. that you know and love. Mm-hmm. Well, and there, I mean, there's also evolutionary reasons for that like keeping tabs on yeah people in your on? tribe yeah yeah who's yeah what's going on with the tribe but yeah, yeah it is it is fun to because again you're signaling a certain level of intimacy which 
in a sense makes you part of like a privileged class for those personal relationships. Yeah. Right. Like exactly. I've spent enough time with this person and you've spent enough time with this person that I can make this joke that isn't like on the surface obvious to anyone. Like if someone whose first language is in English, they're not going to like, just you really not know the difference between cribbage and hobby and hold your Right. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> that kind of thing. So there's just so much there. I, I think maybe like, and this is one of my, Humor is probably one of my top three most fascinating topics I don't think I could ever stop talking about. I both love to utilize it to the best of my abilities, which is about Mm 0.4, and (laughs) um, love to talk about it. And I guess there's just something that seems to me that there's just, there's a vista or vistas of communication open to someone through humor that isn't open through language even, or direct talk or even body language right right, right. there's just yeah. like a there's there's such a intimate tie between humor and intellect and cleverness and awareness maybe that's it like the oh to use humor so well that you're signaling your deep level of awareness about the world through such a simple line is genius to yes. me right well it's it's genius filmmaking and, and i mean what it does, I think, is in a moment it creates a bond with the character that is uh, cemented mm-hmm. by the the complete and utter authentic- authenticity of that moment. Because yeah. I, and I know, I'm sure you two, you have as well, have authentically had a moment like that. Uh huh. Yeah. So many times. Yeah. And so it's like, oh, a real person made this show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Someone who has, you know, pay. It's like when we were talking about Dickens, mm-hmm. right? It's someone who's paid attention mm-hmm. to social interactions to such a degree yeah. and cherished those interactions that they're able to pull out gold from normal life. Yeah, and I mean, the medium of TV is so interesting in that way too because, I mean, and I don't want to like pick on the Big Bang Theory, although I I guess I will, the... The, the best description I've ever heard about the Big Bang Theory was made in comparison to Arrested Development, where it was uh, Arrested Development is a smart show about dumb people, and the Big Bang Theory is a dumb show about smart people. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, but just even like the way that those, not even Big Bang Theory, like those sitcoms are made, a joke is made, like everyone just goes silent, there's a joke made, and then there's a laugh track, so... I suppose in real life, we're supposed to assume that people always just wait three seconds before they respond to a roast about them or something, right? Whereas like in Fargo, if there's a roast made, because so many of our main characters are so clever or their paint is so clever, there's like a line right back, right? Yeah. Like that that snappy, the snappiness of the dialogue of Fargo is just mechanically more real life than any sitcom can be, Yes. right? And yeah. so it's like, it, it it grips you so much more. Like this, I, like I said, the fact that fiction can be this good dismays me that it's not always this good. <laughs> yeah, but it's not like, everyone has our taste of, in things sure. either. So <laughs> I'll, I'll yeah. leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't know. <laughs> I just don't know. Okay, I want to bring up a, uh, another simple but vital truth as this theme that we've talked about, simple but vital, before we kind of finish out on Lou, which is the Sisyphusian part of him, which I think is the deepest, most interesting part about him. There's a great scene when Lou is down in South Dakota and he phones home 
to check on Betsy, his wife, and um, Noreen is there taking care of her. And Noreen, she looks like she's about 18, 19, 20, maybe. Like she's, a, she's this young lady and she works at the butcher shop where Ed works, who's one of the main characters who we'll talk about next time. And she's always reading the myth of Sisyphus the whole time. So that's where the name like actually comes from for the show is she brings it up. But anyway, Noreen is there taking care of Betsy and Betsy has cancer and uh, Molly, the so Molly is the main character in the first season of yeah. Fargo, and Lou is a secondary character who's an old man in the first season, and in the second season she's just a little girl. I will point out there's a slight discrepancy in the timeline because all throughout season two they say that Molly is six. However, in season one, she says that she's 31, and it's in 2006, <laughs> which means she would have been born in 1975, which, which would have made, made her four. <laughs> so there's a discrepancy of two years there. So, I love that you... So not a <laughs> perfect noticed. show. Not a perfect show. But that's okay. You, know, you what? know what? That's... I'll let that one slide. They should have had you I'll, on the writing I'll team. I'll let you that would, one go. <laughs> you, would have, you would have caught that one. Uh, or you know what? Or maybe there's another thing that they mentioned that means that there was a time travel of two years or something there going yeah, well, on. I mean, aliens, right? Aliens, <laughs> aliens. exactly. And Molly does draw a picture of a UFO oh, yeah, floating yeah, yeah. over the... So what's so great is that Noreen has been there helping, and Lou, uh, the phone call with him and Noreen is very officious, right? Like, is she okay? What's going on? You know, like all the data... And it and it's and it's she's Noreen's being great. She's answering all the questions, saying she's fine. And then at the end, before they hang up, Lou says, "Oh, Noreen, thank you." Right? And so he remembers to say thank you. And I think this is the the simple but vital truth of life: is always say thank you to someone who's done something for you, no matter how small. Yeah. Now, obviously, it's not a small thing Noreen is doing. She's no. helping out his family. However. My experience has been there's nothing kind of there's no more positive way of impressing yourself on another person and being thorough in the world than being grateful for the things other people do for you. And so I try, no matter how small, to always say thank you to someone who does something for me. And to like not have it be instrumental into the, it's not like the, the please and thank you, right? Like, you know how, especially working with kids, it's like, what do you say? Yeah, no, it's, it's the genuine right? gratitude. It's, and, and it's like making a point of it. Because Lou makes a point of it. Hey, thank you. Now, this is totally in line with his character. Also not the dismissive thanks. You yeah. Know, like. mm-hmm. Yeah. Like it's a, it's, it's a whole, it's a subject of its own sentence. Yes. <laughs> right? Like yes. it's a new sentence is made. And so I just wanted to, Lou does that, and I and I think that's one of the simple but vital truths of life, is always being thankful. Not not thankful, saying thank you. Right, like the actual, the act making of a thanks. point of it. Yeah, yeah, is something that I feel is very crucial. <laughs> so, anyway. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and that's what you can do after you've pushed up the boulder of like, okay, mm-hmm. how is my wife doing? <laughs> you know, this crisis that we're facing, is she all right? Like yeah. the details you need. Then you can go on the way while you're walking back down the mountain. Oh, mm-hmm. and thank you. Yeah. Right? Okay. So this leads us nicely into our last point about Lou. Well, actually, <laughs> he's got this hilarious line he says to Ben. Because Ben, the cop Ben in North Dakota, has been really flaky and clearly, like, he wants to shovel the work onto other people. And he's... Uh, <laughs> not a risk taker Not a risk taker. And, like, kind of a coward, I would even say. But, like, wants to be promote, wants to be promoted, right? Like, he wants to move up the hierarchy, but without, like, 
And he was in the war the too. Yeah. But like, that's one of the things I love about this show is it's got different people who are in the war mm-hmm. and it shows, hey, it doesn't really matter what you what experience yeah. you've shared and yeah, been yeah, through. Yeah. It's how you react. Exactly. And so Hank and Lou are kind of sitting there and Ben is giving this rigmarole of excuses giving and and um Lou looks at him and is like, You're a shit cop, you know that, right? <laughs> And so I made the note of this is the clarity and courage of the actual real life hero. Right. <laughs> like right. the clarity is genius. You're a shit cop. And then Ben has this like swarmy like, well, I'm up for promotion, so I don't know how shit of a cop I can be. But it's like as the audience, we all know exactly why Lou is calling him a shit yeah. cop. We've <laughs> right. seen yeah. we've seen them in and them in comparison is such a not stark. A right? stark. But that's actually why I really liked the very last scene with Ben in the show is him actually coming out to help Lou. Yeah. Right? Like, it is him meeting the challenge, rising to the challenge. And I liked that because that's actually, I interpreted that as being Lou being the way he is, even with tough cases, can call out the best part of another person. Yeah, he ins- to rise inspired to a challenge. Ben to yes. actually become better. Yeah. Because he just, he, consistency. Yeah. Right? And so being around someone like Lou at least in the last scene of the show, made Ben a more courageous, forthright, rising to the challenge type of cop mm-hmm. when we really hadn't any reason for him to think that before he met Lou, right? right? So like, it's not even that Lou is, Lou is like literally good for other people <laughs> in the roles. That yes, he's in, you know? yeah. So I, I, that was an in, interesting part too. It's like that clarity calls it out because it's like now, from now on, if Lou says something kind or authentic to Ben, Ben's going to know he means it. Right. Because you're not going to fake call someone a shit cop. No. <laughs> so you're going no. <laughs> so yeah. to know. So anyway, to finish up with Lou, the Sisyphusian part of Lou, he's got these few lines, the world's out of balance. There used to be a moral center. And, and, and there's this great scene. There's this awesome scene where Lou, for like half of one of the episodes, is um, escorting Ronald Reagan's campaign bus around because it's the election is the next year, and that's the year Reagan wins the uh, election, and they're actually at a urinal together. <laughs> it's kind of funny, and um, Lou asks a question. He's like, "We're in this recession. The world's going to shit. Everything just seems terrible. What can we do?" And Reagan says, "Son, there's nothing an American can't do." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then what I what I consider to be a philosophically vibrant part of the show is Lou's response is like, yeah, but how? Right. <laughs> right? Yeah. You're saying what, and I'm saying how. <laughs> it, and that's the big... Show, give me some kind of, yeah, rubric to work mm-hmm. with here. And I think that Lou answers his own question in the scene where he's driving Peggy back from South Dakota to Minnesota. And he's ostensibly talking about the myth of Sisyphus. And when he says, and I think this is the how, this is how we make the world better, is protect your family. It's the rock we all push. We call it our burden, but really it's our privilege. And that's Lou reconciling himself to the tragedy and terribleness of existence. And he's seen more than anybody. And yet that, because he says it, it's the rock, it's the rock we push. We protect our family. And that's what we do. And I think that that's him having his own kind of like self-clarity. Well, that's kind of like his his moral code. That's mm-hmm. what you do. But it's like, it's so great. It's such great storytelling in the sense that it's realistic because he's not always, 
notwithstanding all the points I made earlier about him always knowing what to do, there's some of these pressures like, what do I do? Right? Like this world and, is so terrible. And isn't it interesting that he that he asks Reagan and <laughs> and it's like there's there's a, there's interesting dynamics with Reagan small vignettes, right? But it's how's Reagan gonna know? Right? <laughs> why why because this man's running for president, there's a, this and I this was more so in the seventies and now perhaps and maybe again different in the future. But there's this idea that that someone like that must have some answers. Mm-hmm. You don't and, run for president if you don't have answers. And it's like he, his answer is so trite. Yeah. And I hated it. I and, was like, and full of rhetoric. Well, yeah. It's like, uh, oh, America. Like, I mean, meeting with Destiny Reagan was very. He he said these things because they speak to a certain kind of person, mm. like an American exceptionalism kind yeah. of idea. Well, yeah. And yeah, there's just, I mean, people want to believe these things about themselves, right? It's they're part of their identity. But then we see with Lou, he's authentically asking yeah. a real question, mm-hmm. and he's met with that. Mm-hmm. And then he figures it out himself. Yeah. And, and really, fundamentally, this story is an existential story. Yes, I, I, I love that. Uh, it's true. And it's the existential journey of Lou. Because we, we do see through um, Betsy's kind of dream of the future mm-hmm. that Lou doesn't lose himself. No. Sorrow and grief don't... <laughs> yes. Lose <laughs> yourself. <laughs> I know you were going to do that. <laughs> it's good, though. The grief doesn't overwhelm him. Even though, like, per- probably some of the most heart-wrenching scenes are when they go to bed and they have their little nightly ritual. Good and night, it's like, Mr. Salverson. Yeah. Good night, Mrs. Salverson. And all the ships in the sea. Yeah. It's so cute. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it is. It is. It's a. It's a... I mean, I don't want to call it textbook, but it's a, it's like an archetypal existential journey for Lou. And the thing is, the boulder that he's pushing, being a cop, with all of this tragedy going on around him, is so world-weary. Like, it would just weigh on your soul, right? Like, death, destruction, needless death and mayhem. destruction, mayhem, his beautiful, kind, loving wife, great mother mid-30s she looks like and has stage three cancer like where's the justice in that kind of thing right why can't these sociopathic murderers be the ones with cancer why does it have to be my loving wife and so the way that peggy is in the show is so juxtaposed to that because peggy kind of runs from all of these challenges these psychological challenges that come her way and she's seeking self-actualization and never even understanding well yeah in a sense peggy wants to like walk up the hill holding the boulder over her head throw the boulder back down and just keep walking up the hill and be like on top and and, and like not not journey up the hill but be at the top yes right it's all what for peggy no how in the way that lou is asking yeah but how and because lou is even open to answering asking that question he's able to find out that kind of riddle of sisyphus it's like no you protect our your family and we say it's our burden, but it's really our privilege. Mm-hmm. I think about it a little bit like this, too. Um, the other day I was listening to Eric Weinstein's podcast, and he had this guy, Ryan Holiday, on, who's a kind of modern-day famous Stoic. Like, he's famous for writing books about Stoicism. And he, this Ryan Holiday guy, is also a millennial. I think he's like a couple of years old. Is he the one that wrote me. The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck? No. No, that was um, Mark Ryan, Manson, Mark, yeah, yeah, Mark I think. Manson, that's right. 
Yeah. Uh, I can't remember the names of the books, okay. but they're they're like modern stoicism or like um, Epictetus and me. Or right, right, <laughs> right. Like okay, he's, yeah. he's revivifying he's about the Greeks okay, and yeah, the you. Romans and how we might apply it to a modern life. Anyway, and so he's in his 30s and he's got a young family. And the tenor of the, of the conversation that he and Eric were having was mm, kind of like this sad dismay bordering on incredulity about the kind of regnant nihilism in the world right now yeah <laughs> right yeah. just like you know we're gonna attack people through print just for the sake of burning the world down kind of thing and then eric kind of makes this quip to him is like well when you bathe your three-year-old how's your nihilism doing <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right right and it's like the, the the argument they're making is like no you you will f- like have children and have families because you will find meaning through that. It won't be your burden. It will be your privilege. And uh, in a season of television where so many things resonated with me, that one resonated right up there the most. It's like, it's not our burden. We say it's our burden. Like we superficially pretend, oh, poor me, this rock I'm pushing up the hill. (laughs) It's actually our privilege to do this for other people. Right? Yeah. And so. I like that. Yeah, that's my Lou Salverson. <laughs> we talked about him for an hour. He's just so <laughs> yeah. crucial. Like what a to me, I think he should become a staple in TV lore, you know? Like a He should become an Atticus well, Finch. Like, like he should be a stand in for like an entire concept of a person. Yes. Right? Yes. Like um how Walter White is the stand in for the anti hero who transforms and degrades his ethics, right? Yeah. Uh, I think there should be a Lou Solverson type, like who's just, who's who's not un, like he's not like essentially sure about the world, but he's always working on it and always has the right orientation towards every issue. It reminds me of that song. I don't know who's who sings it, but it's like "Be a simple kind of man," right? <laughs> yeah, something you can understand. Like the way that he interacts with the world is through the simplicity of conviction and kindness mm-hmm. and and wholesomeness but he's obviously not a simple man yeah yeah i like that okay so i wanted to talk a little bit about our heroes alongside because really even though they're like lou is the main hero of the show and then mostly i would say the other people are kind of villains most of the other main characters except hank and betsy which we've referenced a bit but there was a few things about them i wanted to talk about before we transition into talking about mike for the rest of the episode so there was a scene here that i absolutely loved i think it's in the second episode and it's lou and betsy and molly who's six in the back seat and they're driving and they stop in at the waffle house because lou just has an instinct right so here's what i love like they have a date they have a, a plan for the day they're off doing something um, they were going to have lunch. They were going to have lunch. Lou deviates from the plan, even for a few minutes. But Betsy, first thing here, she doesn't give him a hard time about it. No. Right? She doesn't yeah. say, what are you doing? Why are we going here? She just looks at him, sees the look on his face, and she just she she knows him so well that she trusts his instincts. Right? So, this is the man I've married. This is the man I love. He doesn't do things frivolously. Yeah. So he's not pulling off here for no reason. So there's something going on in his head, and I'm going to respect that, and I'm going to not give him a hard time for that, even though we had an additional plan, because he wouldn't be doing this for no reason. And so, and that's built on a level of trust that they've already <laughs> right? developed. Because yeah, yeah, if yeah. he was the kind of guy who was always wandering about mm-hmm. doing random things... She probably she might not have reacted that way, but she, there's an element of trust there. Uh, well, and it and it suggests to us the viewer that they have 
such a mature relationship yes. with each other. Even something so subtle as her um, not giving him a hard time for that. And then on top of all of that, while Lou is in the Waffle House, Betsy doesn't just sit around. I mean, it's 1979, so she can't sit around her phone. But Molly's like, what are we doing here? And she's like, we're going to go build a snowman. Yeah. So she immediately goes from being like a good partner from not giving her husband a hard time while he's got an idea to at the flip of a switch, all of a sudden being in mom mode again, being a good mother, entertaining her kid to buy Lou some time. I mean, obviously Molly's not going to do anything. No, but like, no. To, it's still her inclination to entertain and play with Molly. And I think one of the things that I've enjoyed about this coronavirus lockdown or self-isolation is I go on these bike rides near our house. And one of the great things about the scenario we're living through right now is that parents are just with their kids a lot more throughout the day because the kids are home, right? right? So one of the parents has to be there. And so I've, I go on these bike rides and I see a lot of like moms and dads with their small children and most specifically, I remember this one example of this dad and his two little girls. They looked like they were about six and four. And there's since like the bike path, there's kind of like this big pond area. There's a lot of ducks there. And these two little girls are just like pointing at the ducks and laughing at the ducks. Be like, oh, ducky. And the dad's there being like, yeah, look, look at the bill. Look at the feathers, right? It's like, it's just a duck. <laughs> it's, just a, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's just a goddamn duck. And yet, because it's, children the world is new and exciting right and the dad is engaging in that and and that is what betsy is doing too in the show and i think it just it made me kind of have this epiphany that i kind of always knew is like i love i love the idea of parents playing with their kids and doing something with their kids that will stick as a memory somewhere right like i think of my dad always wrestling with me and my sisters upstairs like we'd put all these mattresses down and he would you know the way dad's fake wrestle yeah. with you <laughs> yep yep and just like the importance of play with children into their developing a love of life and betsy doing that in that scene i know you probably have some memories of this what are some of your memories of play as a oh, child man. With your parents? Well, one of my favorite memories of playing with my dad was uh my dad was great at playing uh still is we we have a lot of fun. <laughs> he is i agree he's, he's, he's a, great, a very playful person <laughs> he loves games and uh i think one of my many favorite things about him when we were really little i guess when my littlest when my sister was four and my brother was six and i was eight we all got dart guns and uh, what we would do is we would paint the tips of the darts with glow in the dark oh, um, light. Awesome. And then we would turn off all of the lights in the basement and we would have dart gun fights. Mm. Uh, he obviously, being a good dad, had us all wear, you know, safety goggles. Sure. But here's a, the funny story about him and this is playfulness. So he would paint all of our darts, and his darts would be painted too, but then he mm. put his hand over his darts. So we would never see him, <laughs> and he would see us running around. <laughs> ah, the wisdom of age, eh? <laughs> and it was just, yeah. I never knew that. All those years we'd play, he was always mm-hmm. able to hide, and suddenly like would pop out when we would mm-hmm. least expect him. And we could never find him as well as he could find us. But yeah. like in retrospect, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, yeah, he would do things like that, sledding. <laughs> 
Uh, my dad and I used to play a lot of D blocks, which is a form of Tetris that was on our computer. And you build a bond of love and trust through playing. I think that, that you can't build any other way. Yeah. And I mean, maybe this isn't, maybe this is a truism, but I, I think it's one worth revivifying, right? Is, okay, you're a good parent. You teach your kids good morals, right? You teach them good manners. You teach them a good work ethic. But like of all of those major categories of good parenting, quote unquote, I have to put play right up there. Oh yeah. Right up there with all of those. And I mean, I get a firsthand to that a lot of time because a lot of my job involves playing with the kids at work, right? Like they come in for their after school programs. And even though we are teaching them social emotional learning, I'm playing with them because play allows them to be in a good headspace yeah. and to learn. Yeah. And so like, because a lot of the memories I have of growing up and my parents playing with me, like there's just a kind of a mental strength I have yeah, that comes from that. I agree. Well, and there's something that you can kind of hold on to and playing with others. Mm-hmm. Like I think one of the things that we, we, you and I and, and our siblings and, and uh, cousins love a lot is still playing. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. whenever we go to my parents, cards come out yep. and away we go. Yep. And, it, mm-hmm. and the, one of the things I love about it is some families competition is the point of play. Mm-hmm. Whereas I don't think that's really the point anymore. No. Like maybe it was when I was younger, no. but now it's the, it's the act of playing itself. Yeah. And I have this really. Well, with children, play is pure. Yeah. Right. And it's I just... feel that play is pure with my family. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you feel like when we, yeah. when you came up to visit my brother and brother-in-law and sister, mm-hmm. uh, we played sushi go. Yeah. Yeah. We, we enjoyed the process, but yeah. what, like I enjoyed it just as much playing it <laughs> and not winning as yeah. winning. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. And well, I, with all the kind of like mild trash talk going around. Oh, well, there has to be. Stealing it's, it's that card. You're games, not getting right? that card. <laughs> it's playing games, right? I mean, yeah. sometimes when I've lost seven games in a row of crypt to my dad, I, it loses some of the flavor. But, but, well, there's uh, limits to everything. Well, another example is uh, I have this very vivid memory from last Christmas of myself, my dad, and my future brother-in-law and my current brother-in-law. Okay all sitting at the table at like one in the morning playing a game of of Pepper, which is a card game, Mm -hmm. and just feeling just utter wholesomeness in that moment Mm -hmm. and and just an appreciation for what a gift that life is, right? Yeah, Yeah, so anyway. Uh, And then here's another example of uh, the note I wrote is Betsy next level momming, okay? So uh, Lou's not there. It's Hank and Betsy having a conversation. Molly's sitting at the table, Molly, their daughter, and they talk about candy or like there's some candy around. Like Hank and Betsy are talking about this and Molly turns around and is like, there's candy? And without missing a beat, again, no no lag time, straight in, Betsy says, eat something green and we'll talk. (laughs) And it's like, okay, what's going on here? Betsy is insisting she eat healthy but not denying a reward, not saying, hey, just because candy's unhealthy, you're not going to have any, but also being playful with her daughter and serious at the same time. Right. Right? Like all in one, again, quip. This is why I think Betsy and Lou are such high-level, realistic, good partners for each other. Yeah. Is that Betsy can convey so much depth of her own mind and playfulness of her own wit in such a simple line, you know, eat some green and we'll talk. (laughs) <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And, and, but like Molly's six, how is she going to turn? It's like, it's like, I don't know. It's like, that's next level momming. Yeah. <laughs> to yeah. be able to have that kind of uh, 
presence. And I mean, to me, this is like, this is why the specter of her cancer is so tragic throughout the whole show, hey? Like, probably the most tragic, Mm -hmm. strangely, when you see all this death and and destruction, her death is the one that troubles you the most. Yeah. Even though, like, so many people die, Mm -hmm. the fact that she's dying seems like the most wrong and visceral. Yeah. Well, and it's, um, I mean, in the Camus Sisyphus world again, like, that, her, like, mid-30s, her goodness and her humor and her having cancer is part of the absurd, right? Like that's what Camus would have said, like, look, here's an innocent and someone who is the opposite of deserves it and has it. But I like her response <laughs> to Camus. Well, no, that's what yeah. I mean. Yeah. It's like, that's uh, to me, I actually, I'll just say, I think the way it's framed in the show is the, the answer that Betsy and Lou give to the idea of Sisyphus is actually also what Camus' answer would have been too. Right. So I I do think that they are critiquing what Camus is critiquing in the nihilism. Right. But just it just so happens to be the way Noreen explains yeah, it. Yeah, you're probably to right. You're probably Betsy right. and makes it seem like this is all there is and it's hopeless. Yeah. So, like, well, yeah. Uh, Camus. She says. Camus says that um, <laughs> to live in light of death is absurd. Right. Yeah. yeah. Life yeah. in light of death is absurd. Mm-hmm. But that's not. If that was all Camus said about it, yeah, that would be terrible yeah. or very sad at least. But he goes on. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And adds more. So anyway, this is also an important line, and I don't think we need to say much. But it's like, this is Betsy talking about Vietnam. Could have saved a lot of lives if wives and mothers came and dragged them away by the ear. <laughs> yeah yeah and well and i like her right before that line she said she says i feel some i feel like the world is spinning its top off and it's going to take it right with you Mm -hmm. right with it Mm -hmm. i mean i guess it's a cliche and and then he looks at her and he's like you're worried about that with what you're going through like it's it's such a profound well it's part of you can just see he just loves her even more in that moment well yeah because she's going through her cancer and yet she's worried about him. Him, yeah. It's beautiful. Well, and, and I want to go back to that moment in the car for a moment. Okay, the one where, where, where she up goes to the out House? and then she's going and, and making she finds a snowman the with Molly, right? Yeah. And this is strength of character uh, beyond anything Absolutely, else. Absolutely, yeah. Because to not, to not get under the inevitability of your own demise, like to, to stare death in the face and laugh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. even though you're feeling the pain. I mean, she stands up and she's like, oh, just stood up too quickly on my head. We know she's suffering. Yeah. And yet her focus is not on her own suffering mm-hmm. and not an obsession with her own suffering, Yeah, but a loving of others. Well, and, and such suffering. a deep bravery. Because yes. I was just thinking like the courage it and, and just kind of like sense of self and peace to talk to Noreen about... Lou's future and Molly's future without her and being like, well, I, I can't, re- I think she says, I'm like, it, tell Lou it's okay if he wants to remarry. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. just, wow. Uh, her character, like she, even more than Lou almost <laughs> is her character, yeah. you know? Yeah. And then the last part about her that I wanted to, like, there's that great scene where she comes home and she sees some boots lying there and immediately she goes for the shotgun <laughs> and yeah. puts it in. And so it's like, okay, Here's someone who knows how to handle themselves in the world, is ready, but knows how to be fun too, right? Yeah. So it's like, it's a great mirror to Lou in that competent as fuck, 
not scared of anything but once we're in the friendly communal part of life again she's also the best at that yes right yes i was like man what a she's the best even though since he's the main character lou is probably there's just more about him to talk about i think she's probably like the the most heroic person in the show for sure you know yeah she's standing up in in the face of something that doesn't even feel evil it's just relentless well that's what makes it even harder yeah it's it's one thing to stand up against an obvious thing that wants to do you harm that you can prevent from doing you harm but to be sucked into the tragedy of existence like cancer just yeah. being what's taking you out and still not bowing down is like it's so impressive yeah. i guess just in passing the great thing about hank is kind of the great thing that i let out about about lou is that there's that scene where hank pulls over Mike Milligan and the Kitchen Brothers, and obviously they are not... Afraid of him. They're not afraid of him, and it's clear that they're armed, and it's clear that they are not scared to kill, and yet, and he still doesn't back down, right? So in, in a sense, like even though it's only three people instead of like 12, Hank shows the same poise and fortitude that Lou does and even he though pulls you, him over. And I love that right at the end, the, the, the sigh, like, whew, mm-hmm. that was dangerous, like tensions lowered. Yeah. Like you know, he was exactly he was ready, and then there's that awesome scene on the front porch mm-hmm. where he's ready to take all of those guys on yep. to protect Peggy. Who, yep. Like who's yeah, yeah. Peggy to him? Mm-hmm. When the Gerhards show up to yeah, get her, and, uh, I mean, obviously he gets knocked out by Hansy, but still. But that's not the point. Right? The point is you know? that he would do it. He mm-hmm. was ready. Yep. And then his just his last little line there is the problem is miscommunication. Yeah, <laughs> and I was like, good point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so Carl is Nick Offerman's character that he plays. He's a lawyer and he's a staunch libertarian. And I just made it out. He's such a great American. Hey? Yeah. It's just like um, how he's always roasting his friend, Sonny. Sonny's already called dibs on the floor. (laughs) (laughs) I can't remember exactly how he phrased it, but the thing that stuck out to me the most about Carl was that unbelievably nice thing he said to Betsy when he was sitting at the table. Where I thought, oh no, it was something like, if I was building an ark... To would, save the world, it would be you and Lou who get to run it. Yeah. Kind of yeah, they get thing. to go on it. Yeah. yeah. Like you would be the, the human mm-hmm. couple that I would and, choose. And so I guess Carl, like in the show, represents the, the authentic friendship. Mild, yeah. Authentic friendship and like mildly cynical person about the world, but sees the goodness in the people around him. And it, that's always pulls him back too. Well, right? I just, I mean, Carl's the friend <laughs> that like he doesn't have his his shit together really but he'll be there for his friends Mm -hmm. yeah and then uh the other kind of the last to me the last hero i guess of the story is um in a a very small way but not unimportant is noreen the the young woman who's reading about sisyphus talking like and again it just it's such a throwback to being 20 Hey, yes. and like discovering these famous works of philosophy, but being finally old enough to kind of, being old enough to understand kind of what they're talking about, but still being young enough in life to like just be wanting to ingest everything about the world and just seeing her interest in that. And yet her still kind of Minnesotan pleasantness yeah. about everything. Yeah, yeah. And then just how quick she is to help people. All right, then. Wants or is it save. all right then? Okay, yeah. then. Yeah. Okay, then. Okie dokie. <laughs> and, but like, she like insisting on that they still save Charlie who's knocked out in the smoke mm-hmm. in the butcher shop when it burns down. I was just like, man, what potential someone like that has. Hey, 
Yeah. Someone like Noreen. Oh, man. So. And, and just such a... She's got... I mean, we've talked about this ad nauseum, but curiosity. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. The curiosity That's factor is so such important. such a valuable thing. So, yeah. One other thing about Betsy is that uh, when she's talking to Carl... Uh, and he uses his line that he used on Lou, which is like, if John McCain can handle, you mm-hmm. know, thumb screws under <laughs> yeah, Vietnamese, yeah. you know. You can handle cancer. <laughs> yeah, and she's like, I'm not a captain in the Air Force. You know, I'm a woman who dreams of having, a, you know, chickens yeah. and, and a little place, out, you know, outside of town. And what I love about her, she she doesn't hate those dreams. Yeah, she doesn't think they're too small. Mm-hmm, yeah, she's she has been you know forced to look at death, and has said, no, like life, life mm-hmm. itself is beautiful. Well, and that sentiment is the heroic sentiment from the book Candide by Voltaire. Right, and that and that whole book is a bit of a satire on the Leibnizian idea that this is the best of all possible worlds. Right, and so like that whole book, Candide, this young French guy goes around, and there's just all these terrible things happening to him. Uh, but death, he's like, this disease, is the best pest- of all. Well, so and then there's this Doctor Pangloss who's following with him. He's like, isn't this the best of all the worlds? So it's like <laughs> being kind of like airheaded and trivial about the suffering of the world. But the payout that Voltaire is talking about in Candide is tend your own garden. Yes. Right, like find your garden, tend it. That's actually where you're going to get so much meaning in a world that could be a lot better. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and that's kind of the Betsy motif. I mean, maybe that you're that's talking how you make here. it a lot yeah, better. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So that's okay. those are our heroes. Yeah, those are our heroes. All right, and that's going to bring us to the last major character we're going to talk about in part one, which is uh, that of Mike Milligan, and Mike is the kind of Kansas City mob head guy. That they've put out well, into this. Well, he becomes the head guy. Sort of. So there's this Joe Bulo guy who gets beheaded. He's the head of this little <laughs> tiny project, which we, sure, we get yes. the impression is like, it's something they're doing, but it's not a high priority. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's actually part of the interesting aspect socially of the show for everyone is that the KC mob has this project to take over the Gerhardts. And the disconnect, I think, kind of comes even mentally for Mike and how, like, this is the Gerhardts' whole world, and this is just a little thing that this mob is doing. They're just trying to, you know, up (laughs) their profits. We'll talk about that at at the end with Mike, but I I wanted to introduce him as this kind of... I'm sure he's an archetypal character somehow, but um, you know how, like, there's the comic, right, or the jester? If you just think about all the different archetypal characters you could have in a movie, like if you think Lord of the Rings... Aragorn is the heroic archetype, right? And the return archetype, coming back to the land you once were from, but better. Gandalf is the mentor archetype. And, uh, you know, the hobbits are the naive but exploratory archetype. You know, like, it's just... I feel like Mike kind of has his own niche of an archetype that should exist, which is the culturally savvy humorist, but unbelievably competent archetype as well. right. He's the kind of fun jokey face on the mob yeah (laughs) right right. and so here's just a couple lines to set that stage for the listeners if they haven't seen the show there's one scene where because they're trying to find rye gerhardt basically the first half of the show everyone's trying to find this rye gerhardt guy both the gerhardts and the kc mob and the cops are trying to find him and there's this one guy in fargo who knew where he was they were doing the typewriter business together and they walk in him and the two kitchen brothers who are twins who are big alpha killers 
And so it's it's obviously intimidating, but Mike is very disarming in his charm, right? And so they walk in, and the guy says, "Oh, we're not uh, we're not really open." Right. And Mike says, "That's okay. We're not, we're not really, really customers." customers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then also the scene when Hank pulls the three of them over, the Kitchen Brothers and Mike, and he asks them what size their shoes are because I think they wanted to test against the footprints. And Mike says something like, "Well, that's a uh, that's not a question you get every day." <laughs> And then he says what he is, and then he asks the two kitchen brothers, and they both, they both give, the give him the finger, finger and, like, and he doesn't miss a beat. He says, I'm going to say 11, not two, which would make them toddlers. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's like, he's not flustered by the situation, and he no. knows how to make it funny. And there's something disarming about him that keeps him cool, right? And then he's got that line, which I said off the top when Lou says, make Milligan and the kitchen boys, make it sound like a prog rock band. And yeah. then when he's walking out, I am not a crook <laughs> with a little you know, like for Richard Nixon, <laughs> Richard Nixon line. And then he like he's also he also can quote uh, Louis the Sixteenth. <laughs> yeah. And then but also quotes Martin Luther King Jr. about the content of their character. Uh, you can tell that there's a little bit of frustration and angst in Mike about the racism yeah. he would have experienced. Well, which in, he does in, experience, in, which, right? Yeah, he gets he called, does like experience. I was told you weren't like the other blackies. Like mm-hmm. like yeah. there's there's obvious uh, racism. Yeah, his bosses yeah, say something like, like in, that. Even right? in the organization. Mm-hmm. And then the last one is the part you loved the most. You even texted me about how he, he does Jabberwocky. Yeah, he right? does the Lewis, Lewis Carroll poem. Jabberwocky. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to just introduce Mike as riffing on this. Like, what do you think of as a character, but also into this kind of maybe new archetype of a character in a story of the, the culturally savvy one? Do you think... Yeah, I guess I'm trying to think of another character that matches this motif. I know, that's what I, I don't mean. know that there, there's got to be. Yeah, I'm sure there is. I can't think of any others. Yeah, but it is a really cool character arc. Obviously, Mike is not someone one would want to emulate. He's arguably actions. the smartest person in the show, though. Yes. Right, I would and say. Cert- well, whether he's the smartest or not, he's the most cultured by far. Yeah. Right? He doesn't seem capable, uh, as nearly as capable as Lou. Like he, mm. he's not able to achieve his objectives as that he, like he, he's mm. frustrated by being unable to. He has a lot more roadblocks, his, doesn't he? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, he's going to. He thinks that going to war with the Gerhards is going to be easy, and it turns out going to war with the Gerhards is a little bit more complicated than you know just taking out a family. Mm-hmm. Like they have these almost feudal alliances. Yeah. With other groups that are you know dealing death blows to we're well, not death blows but serious damage well and i mean one of the things mike realizes is that he realizes that the motivation for the casey mob to fight the gerhardt's is just purely financial yeah whereas for them it's their legacy so there's just not the same kind of level of commitment to the fight no exactly (laughs) for both groups and that's the only part of the show where i find mike to feel like he's out of his niche is when he's like oh this is not for something deeper than just financial uh yeah, well, so fecundity of and, the and I agency. like how he's like he he talks about the Roman Caesars when they would return after mm-hmm, or yep. the Roman consuls when they would return after a victory and the triumphs that would be held for them, and he's mentally appalled mm-hmm. by you know he he seems to glory in this idea of honor and competence and victory yeah. and conquest. Mm-hmm. He has this kind of ancient mm-hmm. attachment to those ideas, and he's confronted by a world 
that only cares about the pluses and minuses. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And I mean, I really related to Mike in this sense because, uh, and I don't, I certainly don't mean this in any like self-aggrandizing sense. I just think, as as a matter of fact, I I feel like Mike in right. in the world a lot of the right, time. Right. Like I I just I've read a lot of books and I've ingested a lot of history and not as much as other people, but like I'm in a higher percentile of I think of history and culture that I've ingested in my mm-hmm. life. So I I very often make these kind of jokes and references and kind of sideways and that seems things that seem unrelated but they're for fun right, right or there's something right. kind of silly or they're like tangentially related down the line if you let me get through the Jabberwocky poem or whatever right. it is right like it's there is a lesson here but it's, I'm going to take a long meandering culturally rich way to get there yeah and Mike's discouragement and disillusionment to the world is one I've felt where it's you are you all of a sudden are around people who it's one thing to be around people who have less imagination than you it's another thing if you're working for them (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah and then just the kind of letdown Mike often has with people who don't get his cultural references who don't get his jokes who don't get his um his kind of like little quirks and so that's what's what's so funny to me even in the in the show is that it seems to me the two people he comes across that he likes the most are Lou and Hank. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. even though they're not as culturally savvy as he is and they don't they um they have, he's a spark of intelligence yeah, in them. And they have yeah. presence, yes. right? They have courage and presence and they are a, and and so does Mike. Like Mike shows his intelligence and courage and presence yes. several yeah. times, and he senses that. I think his line to Lou is, "I like you guys. Right? I like you Minnesotans." And they're like, "Oh, it's because we're so friendly." Yeah. He's like, "No, you're actually very unfriendly, <laughs> but you're so polite about it." Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, as if you were the one doing me a favor. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so like Mike has this never-ending ability to have an insight almost on the fly about what's going on around him. So his sadness comes from the fact that that's not how the world operates. Yes. Like he he has to adapt to the world. The world will never have to adapt to him kind of thing. And so his joy weirdly comes from when he has, even if it's people he's against, he likes kind of talking right. to them more. Right. Yeah. Well, and he seems to do it all the time, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's just a note to make. Like, I feel like this is such a, this is a, this is a real enough person in real life that it should be an archetype in storytelling. Right. You know, certainly real in your context where you feel that that yeah. is who you are. Well, because it's also like, well, okay. I mean, we can ask questions like, well, how did Mike get himself into this mob? Like, why is he in this situation? But also, like, what else is he supposed to do? Because it seems to me other, I mean, the really the only avenue for someone like Mike is the arts. Yeah. Right? Right. I guess that's where he should have gone. <laughs> he well, should become I mean, a writer. Interestingly <laughs> enough, you see Mike and Hansi as mm. both thoughtful reflections on minorities as opposed to oh, in your no face, kidding, hey? like social justice mm-hmm. reflections on it like mm-hmm. it's like oh those are the kind of things that make that's a good point because mike only seems to get angry or annoyed when someone else brings up his race as relevant to what's going on yeah right like he doesn't reference he it. never brings it up yeah. yeah he's he's so good and the thing is too like the people that he seems to respect also, it's not About a race. thing to them yeah. at all. No, yeah, <laughs> right? it's just like you're a person. And, yeah, yeah. Also, he seems to command like the undying loyalty of these brothers. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, they just do whatever he says. They're like, they're quiet, incredibly competent. Um, well, but yeah, like, I mean, they're they're not the masterminds. <laughs> no, they're not the master. But but it's like 
somehow he has engendered. Yeah, it seems like he's done something loyalty, to earn their admiration. Yeah, loyalty to the point he where he comes through. They'll do anything. Yeah, right. And maybe that's a good segue then into like the next part about Mike is that even though he is this archetypally cultural comedian, but it's like it's it's a I don't want, a comedian almost isn't the right word, but I can't quite think of a better word because his comedy is based in his cultural knowledge and it's very witty but it's not it's not just kind of like making a joke for its own sake right like I, and again i don't want to say comedians make jokes for their own sake like the best comedians i've ever come across are the ones who are like saying something very deep while they're saying something yes. superficial right yeah. and mike is always doing something else through his cultural and comedic portrayals so he's very very funny but not unserious he's aware in his comedy of what he's yeah. doing yeah and that's so mirrored beautifully in how he's able to take care of himself and take care of the situation when it seems like it's slipping away from him. Mm-hmm. So there's that scene. There's two scenes that really bring that home to me is when he says to Simone, the uh, granddaughter of the Gerhards, who's sleeping with him and giving him all of this information, which like, how the fuck did they not find out about that sooner? Yeah. <laughs> or he says to her, and this is and this is juxtaposed to like so much of the show of him being kind of not a goofball but this cultural icon we're talking about or a culturally quoting icon we're talking about if you want me to take you seriously you have to be a serious person yeah <laughs> right yeah. so you know how we talked about how Lou is serious with that humor mike's almost the inverse of that where he's that humor but without losing with, the serious yeah, yeah. You know? and so then there's that scene too where corporate tells him the undertaker's coming to replace him and he knows the code for that. The Undertaker's coming to kill him. Yeah. So he kills the Undertaker and the two bodyguards with the help of the Kitchen Brother yeah. before they can. And so, like, it's just amazing to me how he's he can he he's so aware of his situation that as things are slipping away, he brings them back. Right. And he's not afraid to do what it takes to do that, which makes him, I think, if he wanted to be, Mike is by far the most dangerous kind of person. Yes. Well, right. and he proves himself to be that in some in in a number of cases, right? I mean, he's the one where you feel the most tension in the show. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. I felt more tension with Hank outside of the car with the three of them mm-hmm. than I felt with Lou in, in front of the you know, the entire crowd of armed guys. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean Mike is would be the king of the mind game. Yeah. In all of them. And he's right? always playing mind games, it mm-hmm. seems. And which is why he's in the role he's in. Right, like he's the he's a kind of like the PR of the mob, almost. yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, and and human resources of the mob kind of thing, yeah. But like, I love that portrayal where he's he's not he's like the mirror of Lou in that sense. Hey, yeah, like he he will he's be what serious. Hap- he's what a guy like Lou becomes if if he doesn't have that mooring of family mm-hmm. and and moral fortitude. Like there used to be a moral center. Mm-hmm. Right? There's no moral center to Mike. No. It's just nihilism. Mm-hmm. But nihilism in this classical, you know, cultural mm-hmm. he, he appreciates beauty and yet is so capable of of violence. Well, and that's why I think the um that's why he's ultimately able to be disillusioned, right? Yeah, because he doesn't have exactly. that mooring. Because yeah, he's like, what your 
your quips and your cultural knowledge is not going to go anywhere unless it's anchored to some other sense of meaning in your life. Well, it's like the guy, and then he, the story that, that, that his superior tells him at the end where he's like, oh yeah, one of the guys saved us a million dollars a year by cha- by changing how the mailroom functioned. He got all of California. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's like, wow, like that's... And I'm out there killing people. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's like, well, you don't have to do that anymore. Like yeah. now you're just a... You just figure out the numbers. Yeah, that's a good insight into him is that he just doesn't have everything he needs to be kind of peaceful in the world. Yeah. Right? Like internally. He he can put on a show for anyone else and he's better than anyone else at putting on a show for everyone else. And he can take care of himself physically and mentally, but existentially he doesn't have a, a platform, yeah. right? He's, he's adrift existentially in a way that Lou isn't yeah. by the end. You know, and it's so funny because to me, even though Lou and Betsy are the heroes of the show, I am by far and away the, the most entertained by Mike. Right in the show, like he is, I'm just there, but like you are hilarious, and I love it. <laughs> right, but it's a great warning, I guess, even for someone like me. It's like if well, if you don't tie your sense of meaning to something deeper, then you can. You're just you, that's when that's when the quip can turn cynical. Yeah. Right. So well, and most of his quips seem cynical. There's there's a veiled threat behind everything. There he is, says. but but for a lot of the show, it seems like Mike is operating under the belief that when he succeeds in this yes. task, Shangri La will be available to him. He even has that line, "Let's go bathe in the warm champagne that is corporate praise." Right, like he is his his North Star. I say in quotations, which is funny because it's Minnesota, which used to be the North Stars. Anyway, <laughs> right, a hockey right. reference there for <laughs> his North Star is completing this project, getting the promotion, and then be having it made. Right, so he's actually a victim of teleology and a victim of the expectation. <laughs> yeah being what matters to him well exactly right? and and then you know he gets this tiny little office it has a window mm-hmm. but it's like nothing that he's good at it seems will be utilized here yeah and, and and so like he thinks he's gonna go back on the field but no he's got an office he's got to get a haircut he's got yeah. to <laughs> learn how to golf yeah, wear ties <laughs> wear a tie I, I just i think that that's such a good meditation on the kind of fool's errand of striving for something external again like this is such a a, maybe a tired cliche or a tired trope in 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 film but like what else can you tell like mike is disappointed at the end he's unfulfilled and disappointed and a little chagrined and he got everything he wanted like he got even more than he was expecting like he got promoted higher than he thought he would was given more money was taken out of danger. Like he's yeah. not around guns. And now anymore. he just feels empty. Yeah. And, and, but be, yeah, because he had nothing else to kind of fill the tank with. It's one of those, you know, it was always the be, becoming he dreamed of, never the being. Mm. But uh, why I, why I like Mike as someone who I would want to spend time around is he has this trait, which I love in people where when he notices some sort of like discontinuity, he'll verbalize it. And he'll think about it, even if nobody else is joining him in it. So he's got this one line, revolution means full circle. Like he's talking about how a planetary or... He's talking like astronomically. Yeah, Yeah. astronomically. Revolution means a full orbit. But then he's like, but on here it means to change something, right? Or how does he say? It's like, well, here it means change. And so he like, 
even him the actor is like spinning his hand around like thinking about it you can it actually reminded me a little bit in donnie darko right when donnie's talking about the smurfs i think and like <laughs> what would be the point of life without a dick <laughs> you know like that kind of like but donnie yeah. donnie leaves his friends in the dust by just free associating about something that doesn't quite add up yeah right right and mike is free associating about something that doesn't quite add up yeah. it means this thing in astronomical terms and this thing in political and terms why 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 is that and that's all yeah but like those are the kind of like quote-unquote meaningless conversations i die to have with <laughs> right. people yeah like, I, like I, the- that's so much the glue that makes up my kind of happiness in life it's like oh something linguistic that's a little bit weird here i let's, love it yeah let's exactly. get into that so i love that part about lou uh, not lou um mike and so then he's kind of a truth teller, but not to himself. Yeah. So like when he tells the truth, absolute power and authority. We do have kings in America. We just call them something else. Yeah. But again, I guess why he's the villain and not the hero is that he's cynical about it. And he just wants to cash in as opposed to Lou who wants to um, stand up and stand up of, against it, yeah. even though it's not easier. It's much less easy to yeah. do that. So I don't know. Do you have any other thoughts on Mike before we just kind of give our wrap up thoughts on part one? No, not really. I think you liked. I, I I agree with everything you said about Mike, but I think your your appreciation of Mike. <laughs> I just see it, yeah, differently. Yeah, not that it's, you see it differently. It just mm. wasn't something that I thought a lot about. I guess. Yeah, that's fair. So then, I guess since we, I organized the notes in such a way that we basically talked about all the heroes in this episode. I think there's so many the, the great existential story, but like I made a quote about it earlier. I love this story because it's an example of good men doing something. Yeah. As opposed to that Abraham Lincoln line, all that evil try all that evil needs for triumph is good men to do nothing. Well, in this show, good men do something. Yeah. Hank and Lou and Betsy, so good people do something. Carl to ward off the tragedy and not even the tragedy of existence because that's built right in but the malevolence of other people yeah like they're standing up to the malevolence of people and i want to relate this to to a, a kind of epiphany i had a few years ago of um and, and this is something echoed in what douglas murray has talked about and uh, the sentiment is basically captured in douglas murray saying we kind of have always thought through the way our classical texts and antiquity has said it to us that there is a there's a good force out there then that opposes the bad force. But actually those are just projections of things inside of people. Mm-hmm. And the line of good and evil being uh, and, and yeah. there's something both terrifying and so empowering and liberating in the idea that the only thing that has ever stopped evil in the world is people like you and me. Yeah. And people like Lou, and people like Hank, and people like Betsy, and people like Carl, people like Douglas Murray, right? It's actually only ever been people. the people who stand up against encroaching terribleness that they see. And I, I love that. Yeah. Like, I love that that's kind of the cash out of this show, <laughs> right? Like, even more, like, season one of Fargo, you get a little bit of that when Gus kills Lorne yes. at the end. Yes. It's like, oh, okay, the good has... But it's him, and it's him standing up and being a, a a more forthright version of himself. But that, like, that's kind of like the whole narrative of this season, of season two. We see it in miniature when Hank and Lou don't 
back when Lou doesn't back down scared from the Gerhards. Yeah. When uh, Hank doesn't bow down scared from Mike and the Kitchen Brothers, right? They're there, they're standing, and they don't give the ground without it being taken from them. And I think the other thing that this show teaches us is something that we've kind of circled around, but maybe not sp- explicitly said before. And, and that's that there's kind of two different sufferings in existence. There is the built-in suffering, as you said, the built-in tragedy. The cancer of Betsy. The cancer, the, the death, the, the seeming, str- the strangeness of the fact that, you know, as Eric Weinstein talks about, cancer is really just cells becoming immortal. Mm. And that's a problem yeah. because somehow death is built into the system. That suffering is built in and without it, like... Yeah, without it, we are in in you know in trouble. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> um, cancer, but that suffering is not something that we can. It doesn't make sense to us. It it, it almost seems it troubles us, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Betsy's cancer troubles us even more than the violence of men, because it just seems to be there. Mm-hmm. But that suffering is actually something that we just have to accept. And that's the mm-hmm. courage of Betsy, is that she has come to an acceptance of that kind, that that, that is life, mm-hmm. and that, that that is part of life. Yeah. Whereas the heroism of Lou and Hank and others is standing up against the other kind of suffering. Right. And that's the suffering that you were talking about, which is this, the malevolence the 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 increased suffering yeah the kind of suffering we we do have control of and that we and even impose the, on others the suffering that comes from not even just malevolence but indifference to suffering yeah so like indifference to collateral damage indifference to like who gets hurt along the way as long as we pursue our money aims right like that kind of thing too. exactly the 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 selfishness and conviction of rightness mm, yeah or or just the facelessness <laughs> of human-induced suffering, yeah. standing up against that. those I think those are the two most heroic things you can do in life, mm-hmm. is one, accept yeah. what you can't change. Yeah. And I mean, well, it's like that old quote, right? <laughs> and change what you can't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. We're only halfway through <laughs> this show, even. <laughs> like, <laughs> I know. <laughs> there's like so many important people to still talk about. So... Yes, this is part one of Fargo season two. Join us next time when we finish it and talk about the Bloomquists and the Gerhards and the show itself and Hansi, who is arguably the most important character in the show. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't even make it into part one. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, do, we do that sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, thank you for listening. This has been another episode of Really True Fiction. Uh, my name is Luke Mason. My name is David Parker. And we hope you have a good day, you know. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Okie dokie. Bye. Okie dokie. <laughs>